I'm Neil Barton. You're listening to The Background Report. For this episode, I interviewed Joe Belfiore, a former detective with the Washington, D.C. Metro Police Department. If I had to come up with just a few words to describe Joe, I would say he is laid back, optimistic, and a thinking man. I don't know much about police work, but I would be willing to bet that MPD lost an asset when Joe left the force. Joe is currently a private investigator who happens to be my case manager at the firm we both work for. Denault, Becknell, and Wells Investigative Group. I went to American University, and they have a pretty good criminal justice program there. It's not like criminology. It's more research-based on, like, what policies and practices work well. But, we, yeah, the courses that I found most interesting in criminal justice were related to policing and effective policing methods. So your degree was in criminal justice? No, it was in literature. I I went to Indiana University for the first couple of years, and then when I transferred to uh, AU, I had pretty much done all of my coursework in English, so I just took a couple more English courses and was trying to figure out what to fill up the rest of the space with and got into criminal justice. So I had enough credits to get a minor in it, but I could not get better than a C- in the um, statistics class. (laughs) Yeah which was a core for the minor, and I just wanted to graduate. So <laughs> okay, I abandoned right. the idea. I wish I could go back and just... I don't know if I could pass that course now, to be honest. It was. Uh, Were you born and raised in D.C.? Yeah. Yeah, third generation. Yeah. What neighborhood? Uh, I grew up in uh, Chevy Chase, Maryland, uh, D.C., which is like um, the northern border with Montgomery County. My grandparents, who are were Sicilian and Polish, bought a house there, like Jesus, in the... 1920s or something and we ended up living next door to them when i was growing up what was that neighborhood like was there crime in the neighborhood in that neighborhood at that time not really the only crime was things that i was doing juvenile delinquent stuff and occasionally there might be a burglary but no it was a a really quiet residential neighborhood like the suburbs but in the city and denser middle class neighborhood. Mm -hmm. yeah so what did you do after college between the time you graduated college and the time you started applying to be a police officer? Uh, well, my college went for a while. Um, one of the things that was great about AU is that you could do co-ops and internships. So mm-hmm. uh, I was working all the years up to when I graduated. So, And one of the jobs I had was that, that I got f- from a co-op was uh, working at the Urban Institute, which is a think tank that does public policy research. And I started out there in public relations and development and then transferred over to the State Policy Center uh, as a researcher on criminal justice programs, projects. So I applied to be a cop the first time in D.C. back in, God, I don't remember, 90, 91 maybe, and didn't get on. And so I, you know, I tabled the idea until much later, you know. I worked at you know at the uh, Urban Institute for about six years, and then got into my business, uh, mutual funds and insurance sales. I did that for a while, and then was the vice president of a third-party administrator for pension firms, pension plans. Didn't like being in an office, so wanted to get out and do things again. I was like, I'm getting too old here. Yeah, I applied at um, 30, I was 30, 33 years old, I think, when I applied. 33. Yeah. So the first time you applied when you didn't get in, how far along were you in the process? Pretty far. At that time, it was kind of a mess. MPD was recruiting a huge amount of people. They ended up taking a lot of folks that were problems <laughs> later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what they ended up calling, I guess, the Dirty Dozen, a bunch of cops that went bad. And it was just like this massive hiring process. And so I got kind of lost in the process there. And and, and didn't make it through, which, you know, in retrospect, probably w- w- was better because the department was, 
I cannot have some problems back then. Mm-hmm. And that would not have been a good class to go in. <laughs> to. Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> yeah. But how do you think the guys that ended up being a problem got in and you didn't get in, you know? Well, I mean, I had uh, I had actually, I mean, a reason why I didn't get in. I didn't have a driver's license, a valid driver's license for a DUI that I had gotten back then. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I probably could have stayed on and reapplied, but I didn't like what was going on. I mean, there were there were guys that were, a lot of guys that came on that were cruddy. <laughs> you know, yeah. Had, like gun charges and things like that. And it, it just the environment wasn't really, wasn't that great. I mean, a lot of good cops in that batch too. I'm not saying that, you know. Sure, yeah. And a lot of guys that, when I did come on, they really knew what they were doing. But in retrospect, it was probably better because I wasn't mature enough to, to join back then. And I'm not saying I would have gotten in with the bad crowd, but it was definitely better for me to go out and grow up. So what's, I've never heard of this Dirty Dozen thing. Was that like some kind of scandal that happened? or? Uh, yeah, eventually there was a, a group of police that were identified by Eternal Affairs that were on the take. And I mean, D.C. is a really super small town. Yeah. Um, so... You know, you really got to like fully vet the the family connections and the background. So there were some folks that were, you know, robbing drug dealers and and doing things like that. And they were all and that when they say dirty dozen, it was this group that you know in those couple of years there when they were massively recruiting. I'm trying to remember exactly when that was. It was around the time when I was trying to come on, but I, the crack wars were going on. And was, oh, so probably like late '80s, early '90s, yeah, something exactly. like that. Yeah. Yeah, and the homicide rate was just super sky high. So, I mean, they didn't find out that these guys were... I mean, they didn't have issues with these, these dudes that were identified till later, but they were mostly tied back to that class when they say the Dirty Dozen. So was this place, was this Washington, D.C., a lot different place back then during the crack wars and everything? Oh, yeah, totally. In some ways, it was better. Uh, it wasn't as sterile. I mean, it had a lot more personality. The communities, I think, were more closely knit, but crack was a, a, a huge problem, and there was a lot of violence around it, and a lot of, like, D.C.'s never really had gangs, but back then there was a lot more organized, high-level drug dealers that used a lot of violence. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it was a big problem here and in Baltimore, but Washington had a, had a bigger bigger thing. I mean, whatever, 400 and something murders. So when you say it had a lot more personality, that means you probably wouldn't be able to find an Applebee's anywhere? Like, it was a lot <laughs> yeah, of, exactly. Of family restaurants? Or? No, it was more, you know, wings and things and soul food and, you know, corner stops and stuff. And then, you know, also the downtown was, uh, it was not all yuppie rehab, gentrified kind of stuff that it is now. And in the neighborhoods, like, for example, when I was um, in high school, my, my parents split up and I ended, ended up moving in with my mom and my stepfather and we moved into Shaw like in 1982, 83, I guess it was. And we lived at like 9th and S Street, S's and Sam. Back then, you know, the subway was going in, the, all of uh, U Street, Florida Avenue was all wood. They had wooden beams that were the roads and all the businesses were shutting down and because they were going to build the subway there, and it took forever. But, you know, when we were the only white people in the neighborhood. It, it, you know, if somebody came to our door when we weren't home, and the neighbors were all sitting out in the stoop, you know, they'd tell you. They, I mean, it was a oh, real, really? Yeah, super close-knit So you guys kind of looked out for each other, huh? Yeah, I mean, that's the way D.C. neighborhoods are. The people definitely do. I mean, everybody's into everybody else's kind of business a little <laughs> bit. Yeah. But it was completely different than, you know, Upper Northwest, where, you know, the houses are bigger and more separate. And, you know, back then, people still were pretty neighborly but now it's like you know jared and ivanka disappearing into their house and you know, coming back out and and driving off without saying hi to anybody i mean it's, yeah. it's a different town it really is it has a lot less personality a lot less character the music scene is different there weren't any 
beer gardens on 14th Street. I mean, that was all, you know. Well, I think craft beer wasn't even in existence back then, right? No. My dad used to try to make it, but it had, like, sea monkeys floating around in it and stuff. You couldn't <laughs> drink it. <laughs> yeah. Plastic bins in the basement, but... Once you reapplied a second time, you got in, and what was that process like, the first steps? You know, you filled out an application, and then you took a written test, which I thought was going to be really lame because the first one I took was really lame, but the second one was pretty good. I mean, there was a lot of interesting practical skills that you needed uh, to do well on the test that I thought were, were pretty thoughtfully laid out. Like, you needed to know how to read a, I mean, this sounds stupid, but read a map, know where you are all the time, know which direction, uh, orientate yourself, which direction you're facing. There was a memory part where you look at a picture for a few moments and then try to uh, remember what you saw. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some elements of uh, interviewing and, and communication skills that I think people take for granted. Some emotional intelligence pieces to it that I thought were that were interesting, and it was all in a, a written test. Uh, I scored pretty well on that, and then there was a physical exam. Are you talking about the fitness test or a physical exam, like health wise? A fitness, a fitness test. Yeah. Okay. Dummy drag, running, jumping over fences, you know, all that kind of stuff. Try not to be breathless on the radio after all that. Yeah. And then there was a psychological exam, which was just. The, I mean, it was hilarious. I've heard all kinds of things about the psychological exam. <laughs> Yeah, it was like it was like a Saturday morning. You know, you're sitting there with like 50 other hungover people in early in the morning, and you're like answering like I'm a, I swear to God, 2,000 questions or something, and they're they're really stupid. You know, they're things like, um, do you think people can see your thoughts? You know, mixed in with like <laughs> normal questions. You know, like what do you like to read most in the newspaper? And like you know, it's multiple choice, and one of them is like the comics. You know. So some <laughs> yeah. things that you would think would be really obvious, like, you know, okay, this person's super low functioning. All they read is the comics. But, but then, uh, you know, you answered all these millions of questions. And by the time you're, you know, you're done, you're, you're ready to um, go home. And, and then there's this interview that you do with this. In my case, it was like this weird dude with glasses, you know, sitting behind a laptop, you know, flat effect, like mm-hmm. not really saying much. And he would do like, he would say like a, on question uh, 479, um, you answered that um, sometimes you find yourself uh, angry. Well, what did you mean by that? <laughs> and I said, um, I don't know. Can you, you know, read me the question? Or we were like 479. I mean, I was starting to get pissed at that point, And then there were 100, you know, 1,500 more questions. So <laughs> if you want to compare that to like number 1890, you know, you can probably, you know. So you were angry the test wasn't over yet, right? Well, yeah, absolutely, you know, and he's like, I see, you know, then he does all this, like, furious typing on the laptop and everything, so it was like, in, you know, 45 minutes of that, uh, I don't know what the point was, like, to see if you're going to go bananas, like, with this weird guy, or was it, I don't know. Was, Do the psychologists try to test you a little bit and see if they can get under your skin or get you, like, upset or angry? You know, is that part of the interview process during the psychological? No, I mean, literally that interview was him going over these, mm-hmm. I guess, questions that were red flagged by the computer, you know, outliers or whatever, and, and trying to clarify them and then yeah. documenting what you said. Um, I mean, I think you could have had a monkey do that. I mean, I don't know why. I mean, maybe it was a monkey. I don't know. It was like a psychologist guy. He had glasses and stuff, but it was weird. I think I know what test you're referring to. It's like 500-something true-false questions, right? And... I think it's called the MMPI or something yeah, like that. That sounds right. Yeah. Yep. All right. A lot of, yeah, consonants. <laughs> yeah, and they ask you things like, you know, I like science books or something like, you know. I. Yeah, exactly. 
you know, yeah, I like reading magazines or, you know, people can read my thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> it was weird. So you've taken it to, it okay. I mean, it, it's a very, I, I found a copy on online. I was, I was just curious and I took it and, you know, I don't know if how well those tests do at gauging your personality. I'm a little skeptical, but you know, I, I mean, guess I, I they can, use them for a reason, right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, uh, I don't know how you weed out people that are a criminal or whatever. I mean, I think. And then you also have like people that have you know psycho psychopathic tendencies. That doesn't mean that they're going to be criminal. You know, they're just right. have um, limited empathy, or and in some ways that might be really good. You know, or for a cop to not get too emotionally involved in in what you're doing because it takes a toll on you. Yeah, you know, for sure. So what was the next part? Did you have to take a polygraph exam? Didn't take a polygraph. DC didn't do that. They do now, right? I don't think so. It's, no? it's no, they just have too many applicants. You know, it's a, it's a really expensive thing to to do. There was a back, you know, extensive background thing where they they uh, went and talked to former employers and neighbors and all that kind of stuff, uh, which was really kind of nice because when you met with the guy at the end, you know, he was kind enough to tell you. Tell, I was like, hey, did anybody? You know, I was like, no, nah, everybody was like, <laughs> we love that guy. <laughs> you know, and we wish he hadn't quit, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> so that, that felt pretty good. Does some part of you worry, like, geez, I haven't talked to this guy in decades. I wonder what he really thought of me. What if he really Absolutely. thought I yeah, was a jerk, why, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's why, you you know, you want a little bit of feedback. Uh, what do they do with guys who are older, say, in their 40s or 50s, and they apply? And what if you've worked a ton of different jobs and you can't remember every single one and some companies close down, small businesses close down. You can't remember, you know, you don't have the phone number. You don't even know the name of your supervisor was when you were 24 years old. You know, I mean, what do they do in those situations? I think that they research whatever they can, but yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, absolutely. You know, somebody that, um, I mean, one of the advantages that I had too, is that I was local. So anybody they wanted to go talk to was still around, but, uh, a lot of, um, applicants in the last, you know, well, since I've been on it, was on, you know, 2000s, they were from all over the place. Uh, a lot less local guys coming up wanting to join. Oh, really? Uh, or joining. Um, yeah, they were doing a lot of recruiting, too, from Puerto Rico, needing Spanish speakers and stuff. There was a big group that came up from there. That's a huge advantage if you're an applicant, right? Having a second language, I imagine? Uh, I think, um, yeah. It helps you if you want to get into a specialized unit, you know, Asian liaison, Spanish liaison, any of that kind of stuff for sure. Mm. But, uh, you know, for the most part, you can get by with conversational Spanish. Like if you've worked in restaurants and whatnot, really? Uh, yeah, I did. I mean, uh, and through pantomime and knowing enough words, um, I was able to not do like full length interviews and stuff like that, but yeah. on a scene, you could figure out what, what, what kind of what went on. Oh, is that right? You just yeah. kind of learn how to speak just enough to do your job, huh? I, I, I did, yeah. You know, there was like, I remember uh, there was a, a case I had early on. That's when I was in patrol. A guy got locked up. But, you know, I interviewed him in a combination of Spanish and English, and they challenged it later in court, but it stood up. Uh, I mean, he was interviewed by an officer in Spanish on the scene a little bit after I talked to him. But, you know, they will challenge that for sure. A defense attorney, you know, how strong is your lookout with your broken Spanish? You know, how well uh-huh. did you understand what he said? Most of the time, when you're responding to a, a, a crime, you're just trying to figure out what the heck's going on. And I don't know if it's all that different than somebody that's screaming and yelling and totally animated, you know, and flustered. Um, yeah. So after you pass that battery of tests, what's the final step? Like a, some kind of interview with a bunch of guys looking at you? No. no after you, after your, your background thing is really your last thing. Clear that. Then you wait. 
you know, forever. Well, actually, I don't remember, I don't know if you're waiting forever while they're doing the background or what. But the whole process took a long time, like a year and a half, I think, before I got. That up. is a long time. Yeah, yeah, before I got placed in a uh, in a recruit class. Did you spend a lot of time worrying or have these feelings of anticipation? Like, geez, am I going to get in or am I not going to get in? Because a year and a half is a long time to wait to find out whether you have a shot, right? Yeah, I mean, you kind of go on with your life. Uh, that part of it is is no good. I mean, you don't want to take. You're not trying to make any long term uh, employment com- commitments. Mm-hmm. Um, I think is one of the things that I was wrestling with. But yeah, I I I, I was just ready to go. <laughs> By the time I finally heard, I was like, okay, you know, yeah. I'm not getting any younger. The other thing that happened <laughs> to me too is that after I applied, I got in a really bad mountain biking accident and broke my leg really badly. Oh no! <clears throat> so I had to do all that rehab and everything, and I was really worried that I wasn't going to get medically cleared. So I was, I focused all my energy on that, you know, I was at the gym every day trying to get my uh, range of motion and strength back in my leg. And, and even after I was done with all that and I got medically cleared, you know, I had a really hard time in the academy with, with a lot of the physical stuff where <clears throat> not the running, like I was a good distance runner. I didn't mm-hmm. have any problem with that, but I, I couldn't sprint, you know, for Oh really? Not very, not very well. I mean, like, people are like laughing at me and stuff. <laughs> they do a lot of sprinting at the academy. <laughs> well, I mean, you're doing yeah, you're doing all kinds of running around and stuff. And there's PT in the first, uh, well, first six months, really. How long is the academy? Well, it's supposed to be like six months, but oh, I was in there for a year. Those classes were all taking a lot longer, mostly oh. in terms of yeah, because you have a curriculum you got to complete and there's a lot of scheduling involved in that mm-hmm. so you might finish one block and be waiting for like an, uh, another month for an opening to come up in vehicle skills or you know or something like that so oh i didn't know that i thought it was just one straight session academy <clears throat> class all the way through every day full time and then well it is you know. that and you're there every day but you mm-hmm. you know you might have completed like the sequencing of it it was always a challenge i think mm-hmm. Uh, for them to to schedule all that through, so for whatever re- and you know the other thing too is that I think one of their challenges was that they were constantly like redeploying people all over the place. That was a big thing that started with Chief Ramsey when I was there. So like you know the academy trainers would get redeployed. Oh, I remember Chief Ramsey. He was the guy who was in charge during the DC sniper thing. Yeah, right? Charles Ramsey. Yeah, okay. yeah. He's in. Um, he was. He's chief in Philadelphia now. I think. I think he's still the chief there, but he came from Chicago. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you get paid while you're in the academy? Yeah, it's just like a regular job. I mean, like my employment date and pension and all that stuff, count, you know, countdown started May May 6, 2002. But I, I wasn't out on the street until mid-2003. I mean, it was like summertime, I think. So for a process that long, it sounds like it's quite an investment on the part of the city. Yeah, it is. Right? Into, into each candidate. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they want you to make it through, obviously. Yeah, they did, and and uh, we had a really good class. I mean, a really good class. We got a lot of attention, but some of the guys didn't make it. You know, what are some of the reasons like some guys wash out during the academy? Uh, well, I remember there was a couple guys. One guy, you know, uh, there was something he didn't disclose. I got found out later. Oh yeah, you remember what it was? Some kind of embezzlement or some something like that. Oh, some kind of criminal thing. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Up in New York, there was another guy that a couple of guys I think that uh, got into some trouble in you know, in Maryland while they were in the academy there was another guy that was uh had some substance abuse issues i mean he was a drunk i guess and he didn't make it so yeah i think we most of our classes went through and a couple of them like as soon as they graduated went to another department i think there oh come one. on really <laughs> yeah a couple of people who did that you don't have to sign a contract that says you're going to stay with us for a certain amount of time i don't know that's a good question 
By the way, did anyone wash out because of the physical issues? They couldn't keep up with the fitness requirements. They couldn't run for a certain amount of miles without dropping out. I think everybody. I think everybody passed that. Mm-hmm. You know, and then there was like a CQB thing, like a close quarter combat thing in the end. Yeah, uh, everybody pretty much did. Yeah, everybody got through everything. Had a couple of people had problem with the vehicle skills, which were actually yeah. really very hard. It looks like fun when you see it on TV. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> everybody's always well. They do it in all every city, but kind of um, jonesing on the police and stuff. But uh, I thought that some of that training was really good. Not all of it, but some of it, like the vehicle skills, was was, was hard, man. I mean, it's hard to pass. You know, you're driving, especially for me, because I'm five six and you're driving a Crown Vic. You know, it's like yeah. Did you have to bring the seat all the way up? <laughs> Almost, yeah. I'd have to sit on a phone book or anything. You, know, people you didn't have to get those pedal extenders or anything <laughs> no, like nothing that. Like okay. that. But you do. You know, I mean, you, you have to go through this course, and and uh, it, it's it's hard. Uh, in, in the end, I remember that being pretty hard. It's fun too. I mean, you you know, you're driving through a course, parts of it. You know, eighty, ninety miles an hour. It's really, you yeah. know, figuring out how, what angle to take on a on a curve and, and stuff like that. I'm using just you know, I mean, you can drive with one with one finger. You learn how to how little teeny inputs can, so you don't oversteer. I guess mm-hmm. that's what I'm trying to say. But it was great. You know, it went on too long, and in the end, we got some interesting details. We spent a few weeks in the uh, Rock Creek Park looking for the remains of Chandra Levy, the intern who got uh, murdered. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was in the summer. That was hot. And then we were detailed to the property division to help them do a, an, a, an audit of all their evidence there, which was in this giant warehouse. Well, that sounds like not so fun. Yeah, it? that was, I mean, it was, it was better than, I guess, running around and stuff. Right, but, right. But yeah, it was, uh, you had some, a little bit more autonomy by then was the end. Mm-hmm. You know, we were basically graduated, but we were, you know, where they weren't ready to, to, to uh, assign us to districts yet uh, and grad and actually arrange the graduation ceremony and everything. So, and the firearms part was fun too. I thought that was, I, mean, I had a yeah. really hard time with that because I was not a gun, gun guy growing up. I'm sure you have to qualify, right? You have to oh, qualify. Yeah. Yeah. And then, no, they, they, those are great. Those are great trainers there. Uh, and then, you know, they had really good use of force training, too. I mean, uh, I think they did a pretty good job of stressing to you the responsibility of, of carrying, you know. And in D.C., yeah. too, you know, you're carrying all the time. You're supposed to have your, your gun with you uh, while you're in the city all, pretty much all the time. I mean, Even when you're off duty? Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to necessarily take it to church, and you know. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you know, it was. And you were basically, you know, by the general orders, expected to respond to anything you saw. So it's like you're not really... Off duty. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you live in the city, if you didn't, you know it was not a problem at all. So after you graduated the academy, how was it being a uniform patrol officer? How long did you do that for? I did it for like half of my career, like it was six six years. But uh, in uniform was probably half that time because I did a lot of uh, plain clothes uh, t- uh, tactical work right off the bat. No, no. Uh, uh, you first get out, and you you know you have a field training officer, and and you, you go through your probationary period and everything. I worked midnights with like Wednesdays and Thursdays off. Columbia Heights, Mount Pleasant area of DC, Georgia Avenue, you know, Park Road, and there was a substation there, so we were right there around the corner from the Park Morton um, public housing. But on midnights, it was great. I liked it because you had you could learn. You know, uh, if you had. And, and everybody on Midnight's is a self-starter. You know, they don't really want sergeants coming to their scene. They don't want a lot of people around in drama. Uh, they handle everything themselves. So that was good experience for me. And I was pretty active when I first came out because, my, frankly, my field training officer knew everything. He was a master patrol officer. You know, he was like, let's go to court. 
you know, let's make yeah. some overtime. Yeah. So uh, uh, I remember getting in the car with him the first night, and he's like, you know, so you want to work tonight? And I was like, oh, I'm not <laughs> sure what that means. You know, I'm like, yeah, well, what do you mean? And he's like, and he's like, you want to go, go out and make a lockup, you know, go out and make a good, a good felony lockup. And I said, yeah, sure. And when you do that, you get kind of hooked or, you know, you're going to be more of the responder, report taker type. And uh, I loved it. So, and he banged me out, man. You know, I, I was in court my whole first nine months, like every morning, you know, we had some, something going on. Cause whenever you lock somebody up, you know, you show up for their prelim and then you got trials and, and, uh, grand juries and, and it's, uh, and when you work at midnights, that means you're, you're gone there during the day after you get off work. Do you remember what your first felony lockup was for? Well, technically, I mean, it was kind of like a weak ass felony. I think it was some kind of domestic assault. I think there was a weapon involved. God, you know, I can't remember. I remember I had a lot of, we had a lot of robbery lockups in the beginning. Yeah, the first guy, the very first guy I locked up was an African dude who um, kicked the lady in the face outside the strip joint because she was putting, um, she took, she was going behind him and taking off the flyers that he was putting on car windshields, I think is what it was. It was something stupid. Kind of seems like an overreaction on his part. Yeah, that's why we locked him up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's got to. Is every officer able to chase after felony cases like that, or is it just the luck of the draw, whoever you get as your field training officer? Uh, you can do whatever you want. You know, the way you make good felony lockups is, you know, respond to those calls and uh, and be smart about how to catch people. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, I remember this wasn't a felony thing. It wasn't that big deal, but it was like a, I think we had a theft from auto. I'm standing there with a complaint and taking all the information, and, and uh, my the training officer was like, I'll be right back. You know, and he drove off and came back a little bit later with a bunch of stuff, you know, <laughs> and uh, he didn't he didn't have the guy or he had somebody with him, too. Yeah, we did a show up and there had been a witness and they couldn't ID him, but we covered some of the stuff. And, you know, you just those guys know, you know, uh, they know the area and all that. So you're just soaking up with they the way they do things. So, for example, with with a, with a robbery, you know, and I did this a lot when I was in TAC. The first thing I would do is I get there. You know, I just had three questions, you know, uh what they look like, where they go, which direction they go, and, and what they take off you. And then, you know, if you're stuck there taking the report, you can't go out on the canvas. But you put that stuff out in the air if you are stuck there. And if you're not, somebody else is taking the report, then you go out and look. And I would try to, i just go on the path of, you know, last scene, um, looking also for the property on the ground, you know, as you're going along. Um, you might have people that saw somebody run by or whatever, and you just start, you know, because everybody, when, a, when something happens, they usually just go right to the scene. Um, yeah. But the best thing to do if you're not the first one there is to hang out on the perimeter. And, mm-hmm. and also if you know where people like to run to. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff like that that's handed down from people who have done it a million times, especially in, 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 in TAC. Was that your I, favorite time, being in TAC? Yeah, Tactical. that, that yeah. was fun. Because I, I was really into, and this was probably from the research background, but in the way I think anyway, but I was a, a big pattern guy. So when you... When a robbery happens and the guy gets away, you know, you would be able to connect the dots between the next three or four. I mean, we had one case early on where the guy, uh, it was clearly the same dude. We eventually, uh, we caught him eventually, but uh, it was like he was escalating and everything. I just had fascinating conversations with my trainer about it because he was like, this dude's going to rape somebody. You know, he's like, he's escalating. You know, it's all the same victim. There's patterns, you know, same victim, same area, same, same, say the same stuff, obviously. Lookout's similar, but you can start thinking like them and pick your target if you were them and post up you know there's different stuff you could do so like for example with this guy 
um, coming up behind uh, young women and yoking them from behind and, and stealing their purses, you know, with little extra twists, like, you know, give it to me, bitch, and shit like that. You know, we knew what kind of guy we were dealing with. It was mm-hmm. like a pretty, it was like a violent crackhead. And we ended up catching him, and then he got, this is the case I was most proud of in my, probably my whole career because it was right in the beginning, but he ended up getting released on um, pending um, grand jury on the, on, the, on the robbery, and then it started happening again. But then he bench warranted a few weeks later, and I knew he was out there, and, and uh, I saw him one night, and we ran him down and caught him again, and he had, he had a condom in his pocket, and there's mud all over his, um, his sweatpants, which was all weird, you know? And they held him that second time, uh, and then, like, I guess about a week later, I saw a flyer in the gas station right there. The park police had caught a rape case uh, right nearby. The lookout was similar, so I reached out to the detective, and we made a condition of his uh, robbery um, plea that he submit the DNA, which I think they would have eventually gotten anyway, but because of the park police detective involvement, they got it really quick, and it came back that he'd done the rape. Uh So... I ended up getting 16 years. Should be out by now. Great. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully he's reformed himself. He was a nice guy. Yeah, oh, was he? Point. Yeah, he's just a fucking crackhead. Just I mean, couldn't help himself, huh? Well, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I was going to say, like, when he was at court, cleaned up and everything, he was a normal dude, you know? Is that and, right? Uh, yeah. And there's a lot of the, when people were on crack binges, it was kind of like that. You could talk to them later. And, uh, you know, they. I had this one guy, this burglar. Who uh, jumped over a fence and like cut his stomach open and everything? And uh, oh, when we when we caught up with him, you know, a month later and everything, I was like, man, let me see your stomach, you know. And it was like big, gaping, nasty, freaking scar. He's like, I didn't care. I just kept smoking crack, you know. Oh, <laughs> it's like, wow. not, yeah. So that's a hell of a drug. Yeah, it causes you to steal. <laughs> I guess it causes you to steal from your own mother, right? Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, and the other big drug we had was PCP. That's always been a problem in DC. That's some nasty stuff. I don't know a lot about it, but I've heard uh, it's pretty awful dealing with someone who's on it. Yeah, it's like horse tranquilizer mixed with embalming fluid, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, my God. And, you know, people can be just <laughs> why, completely... Why'd someone uh, take that? I don't know. He cut it with, uh, with embalming fluid from yeah. aldehyde and stuff. But anyway, you know, you'd either be completely out of it or, you know, people crook out and they don't even know what they did later. They had, had some of those cases for sure. What makes good leadership at a police department? What makes guys happy and want to stay as opposed to just dreading coming to work and that's going a, through that, the motions? That's a day. great question. You know, and it, it's, uh, it's, it's what matters. I mean, the backbone of a department is its patrol. If those guys are motivated and feel like they're appreciated, they'll work their asses off. You know, mm-hmm. I did when I was in patrol of guys that, I mean, you know, and it's a switch, you know, like if you know how to police, you don't have to turn it on every night. You know, I mean, especially on midnight, sometimes you'd be like, man, you know, I've been in court all week. I'm not doing shit tonight, you know, mm-hmm. and you just don't want to do it. But sometimes you have something happens and you, you can't turn it off because it's an instinct. But but for the most part, like, that's why that guy asked me when I got in the car, you want to work because he doesn't do it every night, you know. Yeah. But when he wants to, you know, if something happens, he's going to go find him. You know, got a much better chance of going finding the guy. So sergeants are, the, you know, the, the main key. Uh, they run your roll calls, you know, and I was fortunate to have really good sergeants on, on midnight, you know, that those guys would do anything for you. I mean, we would do anything for them is what I meant to say. You just felt like they had your back, you know, and they left you alone. And if they came to your scene and you, and they said something, it was supportive or corrective in a, in a constructive way. And then they were gone. You know, they wanted you to feel like you can handle everything with direction and back and support. So that makes a really big difference, the sergeants. And then the lieutenants above them, they become really important, I think, for 
proactive initiatives like street um, tack units, plainclothes tack units. And their job there is different. It's to, in my opinion at least, to protect you and give you the room to work your cases and put these patterns together and go after the repeat offenders that are causing 90% of your problems. And in that way, they have to keep the captain above them and the inspector and downtown off your back. Mm-hmm. Like, and there's two ways they, that either happens. They either set it up and they start hounding you from day one to go out and make stats. Like, I don't care what kind of arrest you get, go out and get something tonight. Get an uh, unregistered auto or something. Uh-huh. Or they give you the room and they take the heat and they insulate you from that. And then down the road, they're like patrol service area lieutenant of the year, you know, because mm-hmm. you brought them that serial burglar. And they know it's the right guy because after you locked them up, the stats drop dramatically. But they got to be able to sweat out that three or four months it might take, you know, for you to, to catch up with the dude. It might take that long. But when you get them, especially with burglaries where you can do a debrief, you might end up closing, you know, 15, 20 cases, 30 cases. I had situations like that. So their job at that level is to, is to insulate you from the brass, you know, from the stats-driven downtown freak-out show. <laughs> so in other words, the good lieutenants and the good sergeants encourage you to do real police work instead of, you know, little kind of BS arrests or whatever and, you know, and act as a wall between you and the more bureaucratic aspects of the department. Yeah, and there's like, there's, I think, conflicting theories about what policing is all about. You know, there's Mm -hmm. preventing crime and reducing the fear of crime. And then there's reducing crime and trusting that that will prevent future crime and reduce people's fear. However, if you do that sort of longer term thing and something horrible happens, everybody goes bananas. Like, you know, uh, a a multiple shooting near school or something, you know, all that goes right out the window while everybody freaks out and react the road. And and people, you know, people are uh, anxious and scared and stuff and you have to take care of that. But in terms of bigger trends, jumping from fire to fire like that, I don't think has much of an impact on crime. And that can start at the chief level. You know, the chief can have summer crime initiatives and emergency situations where they flood the streets with lots of uniforms and that makes people's anxiety levels go down. But it really, I don't think, has much of a deterrence on crime. It just displaces it to where the officers aren't. And I think that there's probably lots of research that could show that. But I think the other part is crime fighting and focusing on the right people and stuff. I think you can demonstrate that with statistics, but it's really more of an art than a science to do it. The guys that know how to do that are dying out, mm-hmm. <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, not dying out, but I mean, they're, it's not, not emphasized, I think, the way it used to be. At least at the department I was at, I think it's going away. I know officers are not paid a lot, but was everyone happy with what they were paid? Do you get regular raises? I know you don't become a police officer for the money, that's for sure, but right. did a lot of people complain about what the salary was, or were they pretty happy as long as they got to do real police work? Yeah, I mean, I think you said it right there, that you're not in it for the money, so those guys are going to be be happy uh, with less with, with less pay if they're and you have some control over that because if, if you do make a lot of good arrests you're going to be in court um, and you're going to be making overtime but it is an hourly thing you know you're getting paid by the hour so you know you oh, have to okay. be there and do that it's, it's not, not salary, salary. No. wow that's uh, I, I well I mean it is salary. you have a salary for your regular tour but right. the real money is in overtime like if you okay. want to have some impact right. um, but then also a lot of people you know have because have, it doesn't pay you know that much you have part-time jobs and stuff so, you know, cops work pretty damn hard. I mean, I think they're like teachers. You know, everybody thinks that, oh, you have the summers off you know, as a teacher and you're not doing anything. Eh, yeah, you got planning and, and all that kind of stuff to do. And policing is a lot like that, too. It's kind of you never really are off. 
you know, in a way. I mean, you can be on vacation and whatnot, but you still have cases that are you have to appear for later and other stuff that, well, it's it's a men- the mentality is not the same, I don't think. Sometimes the stuff you would do at work, I'm sure, was pumped full of adrenaline. Was it hard to turn it off when you came home and it was time to go to sleep or yeah, spend time absolutely. with your wife? Yeah, yeah. And in that regard, I think, you know, midnights is a, is a better shift. I mean, it takes a toll on your body because you're up mm-hmm. all night and that's not good for you. But, you know, four o'clock in the morning, uh, everything quiets down and you have that you know, two hours there to... A little bit of wind-down time? Yeah, absolutely. So can I ask how come you ended up leaving the department? Um, yeah, I uh, got married and had kids. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, um, you know, coming on late at 35, I would have been f- fully through the retirement thing at 65, and I was like, I ain't doing that, you know? <laughs> I was a detective, which is, you know, better than patrol, and I had wanted to go to homicide, but I knew homicide would have been, you know, even more demanding schedule-wise, and I just, when you have little kids and stuff, the money part of it, even if you are making more by then, it doesn't really matter as much when you're giving up your holidays and, yeah. you know, birthdays and stuff like that. That's not cool. How much time in total were you with uh, Metro PD? About uh, 13, 13 and a half years, yeah. Was Kathy Lanier the chief the whole time you were uh, in? No, well, Ramsey was when I first got there for the first maybe three years, I think. Mm-hmm. And then Lanier, uh, when Mayor Fenty came in, became chief. And then she moved on, like, I guess a year after I left. She's making a lot of money from the NFL right now. I hope so. God bless her. <laughs> That's all it was about for her was the money. Yeah. Well, so what, well, speaking of that, what was your overall assessment of Kathy Lanier as a police chief? As a chief, I didn't have a lot of respect for her. As a cop, I thought, I mean, she was a real deal in patrol and everything. But, you know, when you're talking about leadership a minute ago, when it becomes about the money and your ego and, and how much uh, influence you have. And she was kind of a, there was a cult of personality around her for sure. Uh-huh. Her story was interesting and everything. And, but, um, and she knew the department and she knew, she knew how to be a, a good street cop. And she did a bunch of stuff with technology and modernizing the department, which I think was good. But... She lost that regard for the rank and file and, and for the people, people that were doing all the work. Uh, and it became more about how can you guys make me look good <laughs> Yeah. than it was about, I mean, the morale was bad, you know, in the final years there. And also, you know, I think she was a great cop and would have been, I don't know if she should have been a chief after 16 years. I mean, I think of myself at 13 years, there's no way I, I could have been a chief three years from now. How's that sound? Chief Belfiore. <laughs> no, no, thank you. <laughs> but there's so much more stuff I want to ask you about. Can we do a part two sometime? I know yeah, you have to sure. go pick if up you your think kids somebody now. Wants to listen to listen to me ramble some more. Too. No, no, this is great. Thanks a lot. Okay, I appreciate it. Sure. Okay, thanks to Joe Belfiore for this interview, and thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music of this podcast. Kevin's website is incompetech.com. That's I N C O M P E T E C H.